Welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. We have a special guest with us today. We have Professor Tom Hazen. He's a professor of law at UNC Chapel Hill of North Carolina, and he specializes in securities and security law. So we thought we'd, you know, we thought we could come in here and uh, ask him some questions, help us understand a little bit of how the legalities work of the market work. So Professor Tom, thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Well, we want to start off, we always do like to get a little bit of a background of the person first. Can you give us where, where, what brought you to the market in the first place? Are you a former trader? Did you just love law and happen to love the SEC? What, give us a little background on yourself. Okay, it's actually very serendipitous. I, I went to law school, practiced for a couple of years in New York with a, what was then a large litigation firm and decided I wanted to go into teaching. And one of the best pieces of advice I got about teaching was go into an area that nobody wants to be in. At the time, I wanted to do constitutional law and antitrust law because that was really big at the time. Uh, nobody wanted to do securities law. It was not a very popular area of the law. This was many, many years ago. And the first job I took had an opening in corporate and securities law. So I followed the advice uh, of my professor at Columbia who told me that. And that's what got me into securities law. I never even took a course in securities law per se, but then I started writing articles and books. I now have a seven volume treatise just on the law of securities regulation. So it really was following the advice you know, to take an area that nobody really is, wants to teach in because then it's an open field. There's, you know, that gave me the entree to be able to write a treatise like I have now rather than an area where there are 10 treatises already. You know, that that makes so much sense. And I've seen that in my life, too. I actually currently work as a writer. And where they actually came to me when I finally got kind of my breakthrough, they said, hey, this guy's kind of a jerk. Feel free to tell us no, but do you want to write for him? And I said, absolutely, yes. And that really launched my career as a writer. So, yeah, I think that's awesome that, yeah, you take the one that nobody else wants. And then it turned out to be a fascinating area of the law. I mean, the reason I liked antitrust was it's a sort of symbiotic relationship between the law and the impact it has in terms of the economic outcomes. And securities is just as much the same thing because it really impacts the markets. And of course, the markets drive the economy in many ways. And then that has, a, you know, obviously a big impact. If, if, if if anybody hasn't been to Wall Street, you know, you've got the New York Stock Exchange right here, and then you've got Independence Hall right next door. So there's always been a huge influence of, you know, Wall Street in relation to our federal government, too. Exactly. So, well, that's awesome. That's a perfect explanation. So we were not a, not a former trader or anything. So we're not going to ask you no. for the hottest, hottest stock, pick, stock picks today. I, I, I've never been involved in the industry itself. Okay. So, but you did mention that you've done a lot of writing and you've written papers and, and different things. Who is, in, who is your audience when you're writing these papers? Are you writing this for the SEC? Are you trying to influence law? Uh, 
the primary audience, of course, are going to be lawyers. And that would include judges, possibly the SEC, certainly in an article or a paper, as you put it, I'm more likely to take a position as to what I think the law should be or analyze things in a certain way. In my treatise, my books, that's more designed to be explanatory, to explain the law. So there's very little editorializing in in the books as opposed to say the articles where you do try to influence the law either in terms of pushing it in a certain direction or in terms of saying, if you look at the cases, they really go here rather than there. So it, it, it's, but the audience is that plus law students because it's an area they, they look to and judges when I've been lucky enough to have had my work cited by various courts, including the US Supreme Court, that's nice. And the SEC, of course, is a potential member of the audience as well. Okay, perfect. That's a great explanation. So you're, in your, your work has been cited by the US Supreme Court? Yes, yes. Can you give us a little elaboration on that? Well, actually, it was, it, it was in the uh, now pretty famous or notorious, the Hobby Lobby case that was decided a few years ago. On, yes, I remember that one. And uh, dealing with uh, a company's ability to not provide certain birth control related health benefits. And one of the issues, and this is what I was cited about, was whether a corporation could in its charter and articles sort of take certain positions. And the, the court came out on the basis that this was a religious-based corporation, so they could take a religious-based position. And they cited, actually, both the majority and the dissent cited me, which is ironic, but for the proposition that corporations can define their own purpose. I, I was not writing on the actual issue in the case, but it was more on corporate purpose and so forth. But that was a that was probably the highlight of, of being cited. Well, that's awesome. I didn't even realize that coming into this interview. So congratulations yeah. on that when you managed to make such a big impact. And I think that's really cool that you were cited by by the dissent yeah. and the majority. Um, so I'll say I'm even more happy that you've joined us now. Oh. This is really, I think you're just such a fascinating, even the more I know about you, the more fascinated I am uh, by your background and what you've done. Um, so I did want to get into a little bit about, you know, cause we're basically, you know, I'm a day trader and I work with a lot of day traders. And so I wanted to talk a, a little bit about, um, the legalities, like what does a broker our brokerage, whether whether you be trading with um, you know a Merrill Lynch or you know some of the big boys out there, if you're you know Goldman Sachs or even you know the small guys like me trading with you know my my TD Ameritrade account or E Trade account, what is what does the broker owe me as as a trader as a retail trader? Okay, and well, it first depends on what function or services the broker is offering. If you're taking a brokerage firm that basically is just executing your orders, mm -hmm. they really owe you only one obligation, which is to get the best execution for the trade. Because there are many different markets, or market makers for a particular security. So they have to 
use their best efforts to execute your trade at the best possible price. If you're dealing with brokerage firms that also supply research or advice and recommendations, then they're held to a, an additional standard in making the recommendations. The, the way I present it in class is that there are really two aspects to the recommendation obligation. One is the so-called know your security. The broker has to have a reasonable basis for his or her belief in the recommendation they're making. And that reasonable basis has to be based on more than just talking to the company. It's going to be some independent analysis of the company, the market, competitors, and so forth. The once they know the security well enough, the reasonable basis obligation, the other obligation is if they're going to make a recommendation to you, that recommendation has to be suitable for your investment goals. For example, you as a, let's say a broker makes a recommendation to you as a day trader. The, he or she could find a security that they feel is very good for day trading and make the recommendation, now's a good time to buy it. Whereas for, let's say, me, let's say I'm a retired school teacher and I'm investing basically for my savings. That same recommendation, although the broker might have a reasonable basis for recommending security to you, it's not going to be suitable to me because of my trading objectives and risk tolerance and the like. So those are the two basic obligations, reasonable basis for the recommendation. And if it's being made on a personal basis to a customer, and by that I mean rather than just a newsletter, can I just ask a quick follow-up question? So yeah. there are certain, you know, brokerages, they have their own funds that have their own fees attached with those funds. And yeah. there and there's maybe a lower, there's a, a similar fund that has a lower fee, but, the, you know, they are going to make more fees off of, uh, of one fund. So I guess in that example, is that they seem to have like an inherent conflict. Are they allowed to steer you to higher fees funds? And then maybe just one other follow-up question. I remember yeah. in the financial crisis, you know, those mortgage-backed securities, it seemed like in internal documents that they knew those were poor, but they were still... Yeah. Um, trying to pitch those to outside people, you know, to, even though they themselves may not want to buy those. So, I mean, are, are, I guess maybe could you elaborate on your thoughts on, on those two topics? Sure. There clearly are conflicts that occur if there are, with, as you say, funds. They recommend their fund rather than another fund which might have a lower cost. Uh, the, that actually is regulated as much by the investment company aspect of the securities laws that regulates mutual funds. And yes, the, the law there does tolerate some degree of conflict without disclosure uh, uh, of the higher fee, et cetera. Uh, it, it's, but where there is a recommendation that's made for the broker's benefit, because he's going to get paid more in commission then that is a conflict of interest that needs to be disclosed. And, and even in the mutual fund, the broker should be saying, I'm recommending this fund. I may get a benefit because it's one of our funds rather than another fund you might be able to buy managed by someone else.
Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. I think that's interesting. Yeah. What, when they do have an obligation and when they don't have an obligation, it seems to be kind of a fine line there. Right. The SEC just came out with a huge and complicated new regulation called regulation best interest that brokers are just starting to adapt to. That really is trying to set some more discrete guidelines as to what has to be disclosed, especially with respect to conflicts of interest. And and you did mention, going back to the recommendations, you had mentioned that as long as they can justify it reasonably, but they really, you know, it doesn't, you know, it can be, that can really provide us a whole range of recommendations. I, I look at a stock like Tesla and I just pulled up their uh, current recommendations right now. I have analyst expectations um, that say within one year, we're going to be at $19 and that's the low side. And the high side is 578. And so we've got a, just a huge range, but as, but they can basically come up with their own numbers as long as they, do they have to justify those numbers or they just say, this is what we believe? Well, when you're talking about a specific projection or of the price, that I think the law generally understands that those are predictions are not guarantees. Certainly. <laughs> so, uh, but they clearly can have a wide range. The, the question is, if they are making the recommendation, is there some reasonable basis? I mean, you can have people take the same facts and one say 19 and one say 500 and both be reasonable because they're weighing some of the facts differently. Absolutely. But if there are facts they know that are clearly inconsistent with their recommendation, then that becomes a problem for the broker making the recommendation. And he, the broker does not have to close what facts they're relying on to the customer. Professor Hazen, just out of curiosity, has there been any litigation that you're aware of where they've they've been, you know, brokerages have been come under fire for the recommendations they've made? Oh, sure. I mean, going even back to the 1940s, there are cases where they do that. A lot of the cases uh, that get that get brought uh, involve high pressure sales techniques, brokers making recommendations because they're getting an extra commission on it. Uh, there have been cases, there was a major case brought many years ago against one of the blue chip firms where a couple of brokers in, uh, I guess they were in Los Angeles from a national firm, were recommending a stock with no basis. In fact, they were basically talking to the principals of the company and didn't do any independent research. So there, the uh, SEC went after the brokerage or the brokers did. So they do bring suits periodically, but usually it's the most egregious cases like boiler rooms and so forth. I'll say that's, that's what I was about to say. I go, that sounds like a boiler room. (laughs) And uh, for any of our audience that's not familiar with the boiler room, they are typically just the lowest scum of the earth where they will call they just cold call you know whether it be doctors or lawyers anyone that anyone with a few dollars and try to sell them usually a horrible stock many times uh it's a pump and dump where um you know something's being promoted as the hottest greatest thing 
most of the time these boiler rooms they'll actually have positions themselves and be dumping it into 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 the buying there so it really is and i'll say basically yeah the the lowest form of life on wall street and they've gone on for 60 years i mean every time there's a good market some of these boiler rooms come to the uh surface and it's it's amazing with what the stories they kept the things they do i was actually a prosecution witness in a prosecution of several boiler rooms up in New York several years ago, where they were just cold calling people all over the country and pushing these workforce stocks and so forth. So how, you were a witness in the, for the prosecution? Yeah. How did they actually indict, who were they indicting? Were they indicting the people making the phone calls or the, the managers? Both, the managers, oh. the owners of the firm, some of the brokers who were making the calls were indicted and uh, believe they all did go to jail. I mean, the various, most of the ones I was involved in. There was a movie, Boiler Room, you may have seen, that is 100% spot on for what was going on. Matter of fact, it was based on a couple of the cases that I was involved in. I've seen that movie. Vin Diesel was in that movie, yeah, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. So we'll, and we'll link to, uh, we'll link to that movie in the show notes. I'm sure I can find it digitally available somewhere, but yeah, Boiler Room, if you haven't seen it, um, it's definitely well worth the watch just to kind of understand who's, who's calling and what their motivation is. When well, you exactly. I mean, there was one firm, they were called A.E. Goldman and Company, G-O-L-D-M-E-N. Uh, they were actually uh, two brothers who uh, were, and were not named Goldman, but they picked the name so they could call up and say, we're Goldman in New York, and we have this recommend." I mean, that's the type of stuff these firms do. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's so shady. I believe it, though. I mean, yeah, definitely check, check out Boiler Room if you haven't seen it. And it's a good thing for investors to see because it gives you a warning of if you get a call like this, just beware because... Uh, there, there are clear telltale signs of boiler rooms. I always figure if somebody's telling me that I should buy something, it's only because they have something to sell. Exactly. And usually when they're telling me to sell something, it's because they want to buy. Right. <laughs> so, oh, wow. That's that's really fascinating um, that you even, so you, you've been uh, cited by the Supreme Court, witness for the prosecution, yeah. putting bad guys in jail. I like this. I like you a lot, Tom. Um, so I did want to shift gears a little bit. And sure. you, well, actually, you mentioned that the, your broker owes you the best execution. So I wanted sure. to get into this just a little bit because I know I trade with TD Ameritrade. Um, you know, I'm a retail trader. They have good service and everything. And there's other brokers out there like Robinhood. Um, now, Robinhood, they only trade in whole pennies. And TD Ameritrade, they will give me fractional pennies. So I might put a limit order in to buy a stock at, say, $3. And I might get executed at $299.5. So to, like I, they'll, and they'll give me that kind of half penny. Sure. So I'll, I tend to have a little more confidence that you know, TD Ameritrade is at least trying to, you know, they're, they're giving me that extra penny where I even said I'd be willing to pay a full $3 for the stock, but they gave me that extra half penny on it. But Robinhood does not. They only deal in whole pennies. Is there? Do is Robinhood obligated 
at all to go into fractional pennies? Do you know? I'm just, I'm just, that question popped into my head. <laughs> I'm really not sure. I doubt they're obligated to because if they were, they would do it. I mean, they're, they're regulated. Certainly. Now, maybe there is an obligation. They do have the best, as I said, the best execution just means they have to, when they put that order into the market, if there are two different market makers, one say is at two ninety five and the other is at three dollars. If you are buying the stock, they're supposed to find the do their best to find the two ninety five price point. Gotcha. Okay, and that makes sense. So actually, I think that is a good transition into my next question. I want to talk a little bit about payment for order flow. Right. So when I, and I'm well aware that when I send my order for buying a stock at $3 and I hit buy at TD Ameritrade, TD Ameritrade does not actually take my order to the market maker. They send it to a third party firm that will pay them for all of their orders to come through. Right. Well, which may be one of the market makers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, now that's not all firms engage in that. Yes. In fact, it's a very controversial practice. When it first came out or first started getting looked at, it, it was viewed as a type of commercial bribery or kickback, which it is in a sense. But uh, it does go on. Some exchanges used to not permit it. And I, I'm not sure what the current state of which exchanges do and which don't permit payment for order flow. But it's required that if your firm will be receiving or payment for order flow, that that be disclosed. Not specifically disclosed to you, but if you look at the firm's website, the disclosures, somewhere on their website, it will be disclosed. Most investors probably are not aware of that. Can I just back up a step just quickly? Yeah. So why, why, do, why would a firm or why would someone pay for the order flow? What is the financial benefit to them to get access to the order flow? And how do they sell that order flow, I guess, to explain the well, process? The way a market maker makes their money is what's called the spread, which is the difference between what they pay for the stock and what they can sell the stock for. And so if they give up part of that spread to get higher volume, they're going to make more money. Uh, I don't know if that explains it. Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of like, yeah, you can you can sell one thing for a little bit more or you can buy, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. There's, a little bit of, there's a little bit of delta between the two points. Right, exactly. And that's where a market makes, that's where they make their money. Because their, their obligation is to maintain an orderly market and quote, good prices. But there is that little spread in between the bid and the ask price, the buy and the sell price. That's where they get their market. So if they can give a broker a little bit of that spread to get more business, then that gives them extra volume. So that's the rationale behind it. And I'll, I'll, let me dive into this just a second, try to maybe explain it first. If you're not familiar with the spread, you can look at any stock, especially when it's actively trading, when the markets are open, and you'll see two, two prices. Actually, you'll see three prices. You'll see two prices out there. 
that are the bid and the ask, like the professor had mentioned. And the bid is the highest price that somebody's currently offering to buy for. And that's a limit order. So somebody might, like I was talking earlier, I'm about my $3 stock. Maybe somebody's saying, okay, I'll pay $2.95. And then there might be a seller. The, the ask is the lowest price a seller would be willing to give up for or be willing to sell for. So maybe the ask on that $3 stock I'm after, maybe the ask is $3.05. So somebody placed a limit sell order at $3.05. Somebody else placed a limit buy order at $2.95. And then I go place a limit order at $3. Right. And then basically, you know, then my, my $3 order would become the bid and I'd be the high point. And basically the market maker would say, okay, can I match this order up to something? And that's where the, yeah. And exactly. So that's where the market maker is coming, kind of come in. And a lot of times, especially when you're trading millions and millions of shares, the market maker is just making fractions of a penny a piece on these, but you do that millions of times a day that adds up to a exactly. lot. And the payment for order flow is going to be a fraction of a fraction of the penny. But, with large volume that adds up. Okay, well that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I guess legally, it sounds like it's it's legally on the up and up right now. As long as the as long as they just close it to us in that forty five pages of you know yes 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 that I'm clicking through when I sign exactly. up for my account. And it's also disclosed on the website. Yeah. And if you think about it, the amount of money that it's sort of costing the customer in the sense that the broker is getting this extra compensation is so minuscule on any particular trade. But where it could create a problem is that if my brokerage firm looks to a certain market maker because they're paying for order flow and therefore not looking to other market makers who if they look to them might have a better price. I mean, so okay. that I think is the perceived evil. I understand. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm sure that that's going to be evolving for the next couple of years because that's. Yeah, it's, it's been going on, I think now, probably at least 10 years and been controversial ever since it started. For a while, you only found it, I believe, in the options markets, but it now has carried over to stocks as well. Perfect. One book, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of this or not, but it's called Dark Pools. Yeah. And really good book, kind of goes into the history of it, how it came about. I couldn't put that book down. I'm a bit of a finance nerd, though, so I can understand it. Uh, but I will link to that in the show notes as well. So if you want to explore payment for order flow a little bit more, and because it goes into a lot of the high frequency trading and everything, definitely uh, well worth the read there. And, and there's a very simple explanation, I believe, on the FINRA website, FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, is the regulator of broker-dealers, mm -hmm. and they have some investor information, which for unsophisticated investors can be very helpful. Okay, perfect. I will link, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So great. I believe the SEC does as well. They have a lot of investor-oriented information. All right, perfect. Um, so the next, uh, the next thing I wanted to get into is, so we know now that the brokers have certain obligations that they owe their customers, that they owe the traders. Um, and although now it's tough to say who exactly the customer is, cause I always say the customer is the one that's paying, you know, but I, like, like for Google and Facebook, I don't believe I'm Google and Facebook's customer because I'm the product. They're selling my data. 
So it almost seems like at this point with all the free commissions out there, I'm now the product that's being sold on this payment for order flow. But the broker still has certain obligations like the best execution. And, you know, everyone's had a problem with their broker from time to time, high volume days, the market, you know, the, you're not getting your data in time, your orders aren't going through, you, you know, maybe your software's not working right. What type of a recourse would a retail investor, a retail trader have if they did have a problem, if they felt they had been wronged by their broker? Okay, there, there are really two main alternatives, it seems to me. If the wrong has been in the context that it cost them significant amount of money, then there's always the possibility of litigation. Now, many people may not realize this, but when you sign your brokerage agreement, you're agreeing to arbitrate all disputes. So it would go to arbitration rather than litigation, but the upside of that from the customer's point of view is that arbitration is much less expensive than federal court litigation and the like. So there are lawyers in any community who would specialize in securities arbitration. That would be one route to go. The other is on the FINRA website. If you look under investors, uh, which is in that sort of top of the menu, they have, you you have the ability to file a complaint. They all, there also is a section on investor dispute resolution. So that would be some another place you could go if you really have a beef with your broker. One other thing I think is worth mentioning is on the FINRA website, you can actually do a broker check, which means you can check the history, the disciplinary history of any registered broker dealer. So, which is not a bad thing to do before you pick a particular broker. And certainly if you feel you have a problem with your broker, checking that to see whether others have that too might reinforce that there is a problem you should pursue. So so Professor Hazen, I I know law professors like to throw hypotheticals at their students. So I might throw one at you, but I've heard some of these examples on the internet. So so one of, for instance, is, you know, Robinhood had several major outages and, you know, sometimes people are holding options that expire that day. If the, and if your brokerage is an outage, your options can expire worthless where they could have potentially been in the money and that costs you a large sum of money. In Robinhood's, you know, fine print and their warranties, you know, they say they're not responsible for any broker outages, right? So if I have a large sum of money in options that are expiring and Robinhood's the only place that I can execute, you know, those options, I mean, I guess... Number one, does that warranty hold up? You know, is that is that legally enforceable, or do I, or, or you know, would would a you know arbitr- an arbitrator, you know, even if I contractually agree that I understand there's going to be outages? You would, I mean, I would think you'd be out of luck, basically, unless you could show that Robinhood was really at fault, such that they knew they had a problem or a potential problem. They did not give you enough advance warning of the problem with their system. Even that would be a hard case to prove. But if, if you're agreeing that if there's a technical uh, technological outage, you're stuck. Fair enough. No, that's 
That's exactly the uh, the answer I think we were looking for. It might not be the answer people wanted, but I think. Well, I know I, I seem to have read about them that the SEC is investigating the outages to see if maybe there was some fault on the part of the firm for not monitoring the system, etc. Even if that's found to be the case, I don't know how much that will translate into any relief for investors that might have been injured. Yeah, I think it'd be very interesting to prove damages because, you know, yeah. I would say I'd be, I'd be a perfect trader that day and make, you know, millions of dollars. Exactly. Or... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Michael. Okay. So do you have any examples where, or that you've heard of maybe where a investor or trader did successfully litigate or arbitrate against a broker? Well, in, in the boiler room type situations, yes. But maybe against some of the more mainstream uh, brokers? Yeah, if I'm, not, you know, if I'm just buying case, Tesla. There are cases, usually it's not just for individual trades. It's if they can prove that a broker who's been controlling their accounts has been making a series of improper recommendations. That often leads to successful arbitration. Or if they find the broker is churning the account, entering into a lot of trades, turning over the portfolio, not for investment reasons, but to generate commissions. Of course, that would not apply in an account where there's no commission, but for commission-based accounts. Those are the cases you usually see. Again, the improper recommendations, which are not always that easy to prove, and churning of an account. Usually there you're dealing with a broker or a firm that has a pattern of doing it. That's when you tend to see successful cases. Makes sense. So essentially when you're trading in a highly volatile environment, you take on not only the risk of the price jumping up and down, but a potential outage of your software because all of a sudden, if there is a surge in activity, you know, the broker's never seen that before. So they wouldn't necessarily have an obligation to be able to accommodate all that volume. Exactly. Now, if you can establish that they should have realized that we're going to get this volume and they knew they had a system that wouldn't take it, then you have at least a regulatory problem. I'm sure that FINRA or the SEC would come after them. But as, as Brian mentioned, how are you going to show damages? And this reminds me of a case I actually heard of recently. You guys, I'm sure, remember a couple months ago when oil went negative, oil futures went negative. Um, and I think it bottomed out near $40, negative $40, which is, and, you know, and that ended up, I think I heard about one guy who had an account with interactive brokers. He started out his account with $75,000 positive on the day and ended up down several million. Um, be, and they, I, if I remember correctly, though, interactive brokers actually said, well, I think they actually gave him back. They, they just let it bottom out at zero. So they didn't give him his money back per se, but they said, you don't owe us these millions of dollars because they did get a warning several weeks or months beforehand that said there's a potential. They knew that there was possible for oil to go negative and their system was not set up to execute orders in the negative. And so where he, you know, once it had gone negative $1, he would have said, okay, you know, I would have liquidated my position at that point, but because their system wasn't capable of, and I think they actually did, they, they, 
they kind of ponied up pretty quickly and said, you know what, you don't owe us anything. And especially with derivatives like that, with futures and options, there, there's some point at which they would have to liquidate the account because those are considered margin transactions, namely on credit, since they're so highly leveraged. So even aside from the problem with the system itself, they should have had a system in place where when he got to a certain level based on his, the funds in his account, they should have automatically liquidated them. And we, we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, this is what's known as a short squeeze. You, that's yeah. the most common place that we see it is when people go short on a particular stock yeah. and then the price goes up and you know your losses are technically infinite. But you know if you, if you short a stock at $10 and it goes to 30, you can lose your whole, you know, now you're oh. down twice. And if you're, you know, and especially, yeah, if you're on margin, your account, your broker yeah. has the right to buy you back in and they don't care what price they get. <laughs> yeah, I just wait, anecdotally add that, that was a pretty high profile example, but I know, you know, in the Robinhood example or even E-Trade, I know people have, this is maybe the non-legal solution, but people have complained, you know, on social media to E-Trade directly in other places. And I think some com companies don't want the bad press or the negative. And so people have reimbursed accounts because of that, just to keep customers right. happy and and they, I guess they're probably not obligated to do that, but they want to show that they have good customer service. So exactly, they, I mean, Robinhood got an awful lot of bad press in the last couple of months because of this, and I would imagine it's hurt their business. So I think you're right. The the uh, the PR aspect of their being willing to send was very important. And I think that just kind of goes to show. So if you do have a problem, a lot of times you may not have necessarily legal recourse, but if you can pick up the phone and call your broker, I know when I've, I think I screwed up one time making a credit card payment and I link, I put like the wrong account in. And so they were all of a sudden drafting for the wrong account. And all of a sudden I started racking up $25 fees everywhere. And technically everyone involved in that trend, I had 100% been in the wrong, right? And my bank was in the right. My credit card company was in the right. But if you just called them up and said, hey, I made a mistake, they gave me the money back. They said, yeah. okay, no problem. So I think if you call people up and try to be a reasonable person, you, you might get more done than filing a lawsuit against them sometimes. Which and that I think heightens the importance of having a broker that you trust and one who's likely to do the right thing like that. Because customer relations is their business. I mean, if, if, if they lose customers, they're out of business. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, that's that really, I think we kind of came full circle on that one. That's a really interesting discussion. Um, I think you helped really clear the air on what the what the broker owes us and and what we're kind of on the hook for, too. Uh, you know, because we all we we know that we're going into a risky. Uh, we know we're taking on risk. There's no secret there. So I did want to ask, since we talked a little bit about the SEC a little bit here, and, you know, they're obviously a federal government regulatory commission. And we're, we're right here in the middle of election season. How does it and what have you seen? You've been doing this for several years now. What have you seen as Republicans and Democrats come and go in the White House? How does that affect the regulation of the SEC? Well, the SEC has five commissioners. They're the policymakers, the one who adopt the rules and so forth. Uh, under the statute, no more than three of them can be from the same political party. 
And if someone's independent, then they don't cap towards that, of course. But generally speaking, you can tell the difference between a Republican administration, SEC, and the Democratic SEC, because you'd have a majority of Democrats with a Democratic commission, majority with Republicans with a Republican office. That being said, at least until now, the differences, I would say, for most purposes, are relatively nuanced. I mean, the Republican SEC, like the current SEC, is much more deregulatory, um, sort of decreasing some of the investor protections, allowing more offerings to take place without the full disclosure that would normally go in a public offering by expanding who can participate in a private offering. That will increase with the Republican SEC. The SEC just adopted a new rule that sort of limits and cuts back on shareholder proposals of publicly traded corporations. Uh, a Democratic SEC would almost certainly not have done that. Uh, the, the shareholders can still give proposals. There's a much higher ownership threshold, so fewer people will be participating. But when I say nuanced differences, it's to date there have not been any radical shifts that you would expect. I mean, uh, the Democrats favor investor, or I shouldn't say favor, they're going to strike the balance more in terms of investor protection. The Republicans are going to, they're concerned with investor protection, but also concerned about hurting the industry. And, and, taking companies out of the public markets because of the burdens of regulation being too great. So it, it's really been along those lines that, that you can tell the difference. Enforcement, the Democratic SEC is likely to have a much broader based enforcement uh, team or effort than Republicans where they may be more concerned about not bringing certain type of enforcement actions that they think may be more questionable and therefore harmful to the person who might be a defendant. Can I ask a, just a quick follow-up question? So my, my background is in patent law and I, I know different administrations, they, you know, they choose a different head of the patent office, but the patent examiners typically the same, stay the same people throughout different administrations. They're kind of career you know, type employees. Sure. I, I guess I wonder at the SEC, not maybe on the commissioner level, but on the lower levels, you know, the lawyers working, do those people stay the same? Uh, they stay the same. Yeah, I mean, they, it used to be much more that there were a lot more career people at the SEC who would stay there for their whole career. Uh, the economics of law practice changed that. I mean, there were still some career people for the lawyers I'm talking about. But it's just, if you've been at the SEC for five, 10 years, you're going to be so valuable as a lawyer to some of these private law firms that deal with the SEC. But, but those, the, the employees don't change. The administrative law judges who decide SEC just or disputes that the SEC brings some, um, some of these administrative actions against brokers. That doesn't change visibly because they're 
government employees. They're not political appointees. And, and maybe just one more follow-up question to the, to the enforcement question. So when the SEC enforces, do they have to get the Department of Justice involved, or does that go to the president? Who who makes the decision on enforcement, or do they have just their own ability to make to file those cases, and it could be a surprise, you know, to any you know the administration? Well, the SEC commissioners have to approve the enforcement actions. They okay. can delegate that to the enforcement division, but uh, the Justice Department only gets involved if either they've made their own investigation, and if the Justice Department's involved, it's criminal. Okay. Usually. Often the SEC will refer something to the Justice Department and they may either hand it off to the Justice Department or they'll proceed in parallel proceeding. The SEC is a civil action and justice federally, but that's how it would, uh, that's how it comes up. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. And in many cases, the company will get, most cases, at some point, the company will get a notice that it's being investigated. And, and to approve a settlement, is that the SEC commissioners again? Or is that, for instance, you know, like, you know, an investment, Goldman Sachs, you know, they get, you know, a $2 billion, maybe a slap on the wrist to them or something like that. Is that the commissioners deciding that? Or do we have, is there any way to influence that? Or what's your Well, it, it's, it ultimately is the commissioners for lower settlements, they may delegate that to the people, the full-time people in the enforcement division. But the SEC, the commission will monitor the settlements, certainly if they're high profile or large amounts of money. Great. Thank you. And if it's a court case, sometimes it's a, a court case, and then the judge has to approve the settlement. Sure. All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I did notice on um, on your uh, bio on your web on UNC's website, you had an up and coming article about se security law impact on social responsibility. I know that's up and coming. You haven't published it yet. Can you give us a little preview? Is that more of more on the ethical side of things, or are we still dealing strictly with legalities? Uh, well, that's first of all mostly in the corporate rather than securities law area. It's dealing with a question, and it's been an age-old debate. Uh, Milton Friedman, the prize-winning economist, wrote a big article in the New York Times many, many years ago saying, the sole, the sole social responsibility of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders, not to worry about making charitable contributions and the like. That has not been the basic approach of most companies, and certainly today it's not either. It clearly is not the approach. Companies will often do things for social responsible responsibility, even though it might be at the sacrifice of profits, at least in the short term. Say, not manufacture things offshore where they may be dealing with child labor rather bring it back home, have U.S. manufacturing, higher costs, but uh, more socially responsible, being green and environmentally conscious. So the article is simply discussing the recent developments that more and more investors are focusing on 
wanting their companies to be socially responsible. And there also is evidence, and this is more business school type uh, research, that socially responsible companies in terms of environmentally sound and so forth, in the long term, gives better company performance. And that's, I think, one of the points, yeah, because if you destroy the planet and there's no company and no customers and everything else, then, you know, shareholder profits will suffer in the future. And even going into paying a decent wage, um, you know, I think uh, we could, one of the, one of the people I know of uh, Henry Ford back when, uh, when he was building the Model T. And my understanding is Henry Ford was not exactly the nicest person in the world. Not at all. <laughs> but he gave his workers the five-day work week and it increased their wages because he said, well, if I give these people more money and time off, I got a bunch of more customers. He did, but to a limited, very limited extent. I think that was more his PR than yes. how well he really treated them. But another reason it's good is consumer boycotts, for example. And you know, Nike, I mean, a number of universities were pressured not to do business with Nike so long as they were manufacturing shoes and using child labor. So that consumer pressure or investor pressure has pushed many companies to being more socially responsible. So, Professor Hazen, we've talked about this in our other podcast. I, I think social responsibility is, is a really interesting topic, but I think one of the things that we've noticed is that you could have a really like you could have you know a diverse board and you could do really good things for the environment, donate a lot to charity. But we maybe take the example of Amazon, you know, but you treat you know your workers terribly in this one example, or you're driving out small mom and pop businesses, right? So it doesn't seem like there's an objective measure to say this oh, is no. a good. This, is a, this one gets a nine out of ten. This one gets a ten out of ten. This is a five out of ten. How do I decide what, which one is good and which one's bad? And plus, you know, just as we have a political divide these days. There's a divide on what's socially responsible. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are concerned with the environment and so forth. Uh, others might be concerned with, say, well, take the Hobby Lobby case, uh, not providing certain health insurance because they think it's socially irresponsible to promote uh, abortion for birth control. I mean, that there's a rabbit hole you can start going down in that direction. Sure. Well, certainly. You spoke like a, like a true lawyer there where there's, there's two sides to every story, right? Oh, there is. I mean, I, I no, personally, I, I'm one that, that is on the social responsibility side. Uh, I've felt that for a long time. And this, these companies are making money off of us, whether we are the workers or we're the consumers, they're making money off of us. So they should give something back to society. I, mean, I, I, I 100% agree with you, especially I think once a company becomes so big, when oh, they just right. absolutely dominate an industry, it's not like, and there's really, you know, they've already put all their competitors out of business. It's not like, you know, I can say, well, I'm, I won't do business with them. I'm going to go over here when there is no over here. There is right. no necessarily competitor. And of course, then you have like Ben and Jerry's was the poster boy for a social responsible, socially responsible company because they did do a lot of socially responsible things. Uh, now that they've been taken over, what is it, Unilever? 
has taken over benefits. I think there's a question are they going to lose some of that, which they may well. I, I, I think your points are all really valid. I mean, I, I've seen articles, and I actually do this too. I've, I've, I examine you know, socially responsible, they, the ESG funds versus like a normal mutual fund, you know, and they might hire, have a little bit higher fees. But, you know, I look at the top 10 holdings and to me, you know, like I like to know that I'm investing in companies that are a little bit, I'm, I'm willing to pay that up just a fraction, you know, a little bit yeah. higher fees for that. And I think, again, you know, my wife, you know, we don't want to invest in tobacco companies or something that's, you know, harmful. And I, I think, you know, as investors, if you see companies that are getting, you know, higher share prices because of this, I think that the, the market, like the market itself will kind of correct for this or it will be influenced. Uh, by I think e, the ESG, I mean, that is such a big issue these days in terms of companies making disclosures. You asked, circling back to your question about the SEC, the current SEC is taking a, a more general approach to ESG disclosures than, say, a more regulatory SEC might by actually requiring standardized disclosures and so forth. So, so that, but the requirement that a company disclose its ESG compliance is a very big current issue in yeah. regulation. Uh, I would just say one other interesting point on that. And so my wife, she works for a company and she works kind of, you know, to make their, a lot of, on their environmental sustainability side, but there's such a lack of like, you know, what is the regulation regulation on that? And what, what's your carbon footprint? How do we monitor that? You can just advertise, you can say your carbon footprint's great and no one can, you know, challenge you on that because we're using our internal data. It's just kind of a wild west at some points in some of these issues. It really is. Yeah. And you guys, you keep me mentioning ESG. What yeah. does that stand for? Environmental Social Governance. Perfect. Uh, and there are three different, you know, they're capturing three different aspects of social responsibility. Environmental is obviously being green. Social would be the social responsibility, including how you treat the community and give back to the community. And governance is, do you have an ethical governance structure in the company itself? Yeah. I think those are all important points to consider. Uh, I mean, it's certainly something I think about, at least when I invest. Oh, awesome. I think we've really come full circle. I think we've had a lot of great topics here. Um, I, I've been fascinated by this conversation. I cannot thank you enough, Tom, for coming oh. on the show today with us. Really do appreciate it. Can you leave us? We have one more segment, but can you give, if people wanted to reach out to you, is there a good way to get a hold of you? Well, the, the UMC webpage, the uh, law school webpage, has them the email contact information. Uh, All right. We will we'll link to that in the show notes. That one thing, just uh, if anybody is thinking of contacting me, I am not licensed to practice law in North Carolina. So I cannot give legal advice. I, mean, it, it, it's, uh, I get asked that quite a bit, but I'm just not able to do that. But, uh, that would be the best way to contact. Okay, perfect. And I think it's worth just saying here that none of us were intending to provide anybody any legal oh, advice no, today. Right. We were just here having a discussion, uh, you know, with a very seasoned veteran of the industry who knows, uh, who knows a thing or two about how the laws work. But if, if you're, you, you know, everyone's situation is unique and you should contact your own personal yeah. lawyer with any situation that might be, uh, that you might be. This was really meant for uh, entertainment purposes. That's my yeah. full disclosure there. And I'm not even a lawyer when I say that. 
Um, all right. Well, great. We'll link to your webpage uh, in the show notes with a few with a few other things that I had mentioned. So let's go. If you've got a little bit more time, we're going to jump to the last segment. Brian has the question of the day, and he comes up with this every time. It's both me and our guests will be completely uh, in the dark about it until right this moment. So shoot away, Brian. So this is the, the fun question of the day. Since we have a law professor here, I, I think I would ask a little about education in America. So this is a broad question, but if you could change anything about education, it'd be from high school or grade school or law school, if you could change one thing about the education system of how we teach people today, what would you add or subtract? Just Or you can do one to three things, but just anything on the top of your mind, if you were to change something, what would you change? Well, one thing just about being an educator, the education we give in the law school, the issues are so different even from undergraduate and much more different than K-12. So I, I wouldn't even venture to, I mean, my kids are grown enough that we're out of the public school and undergraduate system. So I wouldn't even venture to go there, but uh, one thing clearly that this pandemic has shown us is that we have to learn how to do remote learning better. Uh, it, more and more institutions have offered remote learning, not even pandemic related, but it's such a different animal. I mean, we've been forced into remote teaching because we're closed in terms of the physical building. And there's just so much to be learned about how to do it and how to do it well. So I, and that's what comes to mind just because that's what I personally am in the midst of right now. That's great. And that perfectly fair assessment, absolutely. Um, so for me, I actually, one of the things that I always not always, but more recently, as I've gone into more of an entrepreneurial standpoint, I feel like schools don't necessarily prepare people for an entrepreneurial venture. And I would want to see more of pushing people a little outside of their comfort zone, but not necessarily being, I guess, as strict on somebody for failing. Like it's okay to fail, I think would be, uh, and I, I don't have a perfect solution for this because, you know, you're hitting me out of the blue with it. But I always, you know, I feel like a lot of times in school, you were going through it and you were just hoping that you could remember enough that you could get through this next test. And, you know, the, and so they maybe try to, the, the teachers or professor might slow it down or try to keep you, you know, up to speed with it. But I think it might be better to maybe push people a little further and then just not punish them as much for, for failing as long as, they're, as long as they're trying and putting forth an effort. Um, I don't know exactly how to do that, but that's what I'd want to see more of. I think I, I would agree with you completely on that. So Brian, so I, you've I, got a two-year-old daughter. Yes, I do. And I, I've given some thought to this. You know, me and Michael are runners. So when we're out for our runs, we just, our minds go wild and we think a lot. But I think that I would just pick two things. So I'll cheat here. But I think one, I think physical act physical activity for kids. So having a PE class, I think having it more than just once a week, I would hopefully, I know this might be a lot of like, five days a week, just at least a little bit, you know, because kids have a lot of energy. So I would want to see at least some time for that. Cause I know we, there's a lot of standardized testing. There's a lot of preparation, but just letting kids have some physical activity every day, that would be great. And I think for one thing for later in life, I think I never got this in my education, but I think a class that's dedicated to giving presentations, not like a speech class, but just, you know, and maybe this can be combined with a statistics class, but basically 
gathering evidence, making a point, and using statistical evidence to back up your point, and doing that in some kind of presentation format. So a class that just, you know, whether high school or even middle school, but just something that I think a lot of your time is spent, you know, convincing people of a particular argument or a particular idea, and so how to best make your case. And um, that would be my suggestion. I like that. I, I think you know what? If they're if we're gonna form a new education board, we've got the start right here. <laughs> Probably the most valuable course I ever took was in college. It was called the speech course, but we had to do that. We had to learn how to give a speech, not just the physical speaking aspect, but preparing a talk, doing a debate. Uh, that's important, whatever you're going to be doing in later life. So I think that, and to do that in elementary and, and uh, high school would be a great idea. Brian, have you heard, uh, this is an old Jerry Seinfeld bit, but he, he brought up that the number one fear in America was public speaking and the number two is death. And he, so he said that the based on that analogy, the people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. I've heard that before. <laughs> so no, that's a great point though. I do. I think public speaking, public speaking is definitely very, very important. And yeah, shouldn't, it shouldn't be kind of this thing. I feel like they don't, I, I know when I went through school, it was like here and there and everyone was like terrified of it when you had to do that one or two presentations. But I think maybe that's even going back to my point of pushing people out of their comfort zone, getting them to try new things. So. Absolutely. Great. Well, this is this has been a fantastic conversation, uh, Professor Tom. Really enjoyed having you on. Uh, you're, you know, say just a wealth of knowledge here. I feel like I could have talked to you all day uh, just about these things because I'm, I'm such a such a nerd when it comes to the market. So, but thank you for joining us today. Oh, really do appreciate it. I'm glad I could be here. Thank you. All righty. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Uh, this okay. is Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian, and this is Michael. Please okay. rate and review us, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.